Now, we have been going in through this series. Today is the last sermon in the series. It's been called The Almost. If you are just tuning into it right now, we've been looking at this tension, this space that we live in between what God had originally created and what he plans to ultimately restore. So there's this tension in between. We call it the almost. And we've been looking at miracles. And we've been studying actually a lot of the miracles of Jesus. But today, we're going old school. We're going back to the Old Testament. We're going to take it to Daniel chapter 3. And I know that's weird. It's like, well, what happens in Daniel 1 and 2? You probably know. In case you don't, I'll give you a little bit of context here, all right? So in Daniel chapter 1, we have this, this sad, tragic event, but intentional event happened. This is around 605 BC. The king of Babylon, his name was Nebuchadnezzar, he ransacks, overtakes Jerusalem, and he takes captives. He takes the jewels from their temple, and he actually selects some of the best young men in all of Jerusalem. And he begins this process of assimilation, right? He wants to bring them into his royal palace, into his leadership. And so we are introduced to these four characters right at the beginning of Daniel chapter 1. Their names are Daniel, who you know, the, the book is named after. There's Hananiah, there's Mishael, and there's Azariah. Now, these are unique names, but they're important names. You know that names can have significance, right? So these names are important because the name Daniel literally means God is my judge. Hananiah, it literally means Jehovah or God is gracious. Mishael, that name means who belongs to God. And Azariah, this name means Jehovah helps. So these Hebrews had significance in their names. And one of the first things that the king of Babylon does is he strips that away. He changes their names. So we have Daniel. He now becomes Belteshazzar. We have Hananiah. He now becomes Shadrach. And we have Mishael that becomes Meshach. And Azariah becomes Abednego. Now from here on out, those, the last three are called by their Babylonian names, but we continue to call Daniel, Daniel the whole way through. We never really take to calling him Belteshazzar. That's just an interesting thing. One more interesting thing, something that was kind of uh, bugging me a little bit all week long, was I was listening to other pastors sharing about this story, and I kept hearing this mispronunciation, right? So I want to show you this. The, the name is Abednego, right? It's Abednego, not Abendigo, right? So many, these pastors are preaching, and I'm like, you're saying it wrong. You're saying Abendigo, Abendigo. I'm like, just look at it. It's Abednego, right? And it's, sorry, I'm kind of on a high horse. I'll get off of it here, but it's just interesting, right? Uh, so Abednego, you'll hear me say that name a lot in this sermon. Now, their names were changed, and something else happened. They were actually given food from the king's table, from the king's kitchen, right? This was part of this process, bringing them in. And something significant happens here. I want, to, I want you to notice this because it's important because it shows how faithful they were and how strong they were. But they decided that they would not defile themselves with the king's food, all right? And they decided to ask for something different, a different type of diet, right? And the Seventh-day Adventists, we love this because they ask for water and vegetables. And we're like, boom, right there, vegetarianism. That's the standard, right? That's what we should all do. And it's good. It is good. But 
there were some other reasons for this, okay? So they had three, three things particularly, right? The king's table and kitchen would, would offer and serve a lot of unclean meats, right? So this was against what they believed, against their religion. They said, no, we're not going to eat these unclean meats. He also, there were these Levitical laws that were very specific, and it talked about the proper way to kill an animal and how to prepare it. And so they said, no, they don't, they don't kill it properly. It's not in our custom. And the third and final thing, which is really the most important one, I would say, is that a lot of this meat that came from the king had been sacrificed or offered to other gods, to false gods, right? So they're saying, like, no, we're not going to do this. We're going to take a stand, and we're not going to eat the king's food. So after 10 days, actually, they were found to be healthier and better nourished than all the others. Amazing, right? And then it says that God gave these four young men an unusual aptitude for understanding every aspect of literature and wisdom. The last thing I want you to see here, this this comes from uh, Daniel chapter 1, verse 18. There was this training period, right, a period of probably three years or so that took place. And at the end of it, the king of Babylon looks at these four Hebrews, and he finds them to be ten times better and more capable than any of the magicians and the encanters in his entire kingdom. Ten times better. If, if you're really good at something, imagine meeting somebody that's 10 times better than you, right? If you're known as the best, right, like you're the best of the best, imagine you come into some contact with somebody who's 10 times better. That is a significant gap, right? And I point this out because Babylon had its best, all right? They had people that were in that role. And here now we have these Hebrews, these slaves, these young men that were overtaken, they're coming in, and now the king is telling his best that they are not just a little, that they are way better than them. So think about the impact that would have on them, because uh, it'll, it'll play out a little bit later, right? So they're 10 times better, and now I want us to start chapter 3, verse 1. It says, King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold statue 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide. And he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. So in Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has this dream about a statue, right? And in Daniel chapter 3, we begin with a statue. Now, is that a coincidence? Maybe, probably. There's actually been a lot of uh, uncertainty question, conversation about whether or not this statue in chapter 3 was an image of Nebuchadnezzar himself or something different. And I want to just note that this is a unique statue, right? Look at the dimensions of it. It's 90 feet tall and it's 9 feet wide. So quite tall but also quite thin, skinny, right? So if you're thinking about statues, think less of the Statue of Liberty and more of the Washington Monument, okay? Because the Statue of Liberty is like over 300 feet tall, but the majority of it is that base, that pedestal it sits on. So really, the statue itself is like a little over 100 feet. So maybe in size, it's similar to that, but really in shape, it's closer to the Washington Monument. It's monolithic, all right? So we, honestly, we don't know 
if this statue in Daniel chapter 3 is a statue of Nebuchadnezzar, but here's something that we should notice. In Daniel 2, the image that he dreams of, it's the top portion, the head, represents the kingdom of Babylon, and the head was made of gold, right? So Daniel chapter 3, now we see Nebuchadnezzar building this statue, and the entire statue is made of gold. And one commentator I was reading, he said that this could suggest that Nebuchadnezzar had this intention that his kingdom would never fall, that it would reign forever, and there would be no inferior kingdom that comes after. So interesting, he, he has this dream where only a part of it represents Babylon and its gold. Now he makes this statue that's entirely of gold. So now we go to chapter, or verse 2. It says, Nebuchadnezzar sent messengers to the high officers, messages to the high offices, the officials, the governors, the advisors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the provincial officials to come to the dedication of the statue that he had set up. So all these officials come, and they stand before the statue King Nebuchadnezzar had built. This seems like a very political move, right? He's inviting all of the, the important people, all the right leaders, all of them to come. And he's, he's invited them to this sort of like an unveiling, a big revealing, right? It's a dedication event. Notice this was not advertised as a religious event, okay? So it's more like a ribbon cutting, you know, it's like, a, oh, a new building, okay, we're going to cut the ribbon. It's like significant ceremony. But things take a turn, all right? At verse 4, a herald shouts out, people of all races and nations and languages, listen to the king's command. When you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and other musical instruments, bow to the ground to worship King Nebuchadnezzar's gold statue. Now, wait a second. What? They're, they're here for the ribbon cutting. They're not here to, to worship and bow down to this image, right? They're totally caught off guard, I would think. But it gets even worse because the herald then says, anyone who refuses to obey will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. So if you don't bow down, you will die. They're like, I thought this was, a, <laughs> this was a dedication. Now my life is on the line? This is, this is crazy, right? So, spoiler alert, the boys, these three Hebrews, don't bow down. And we're going to see more of that. But they stood up for what was right. All right? They made a stand. Just like they did with the food, the diet issues, they're taking a stand. They say they're not going to bow down. And there was a time in my life where I took a stand. I've, I've taken many stands in my life, but in this story, I took a stand for what I thought was right. While I was in college, I worked at Big Lake Youth Camp. This is a camp in Oregon, right? I was a lifeguard there, waterfront. And some, sometimes, like, throughout the week, friends would come visit. And so on this particular day, some friends were in town, and there was something we would do. We called it the polar bear plunge, right? Because the lake was cold like all year long. It was pretty, pretty cold, even in the middle of the summer. So 
Some friends came and a group of the staffers were going to take them to this little secret cove and do the polar bear plunge. Now, normally I'd be super down. I actually like doing polar bear plunges. I just like being able to plunge into a hot tub right afterwards, right? So I was like, I don't think so. But anyways, a friend of mine comes and she says, hey, those guys just went to the cove to do the polar bear plunge. Let's go. And I was like, "Uh, I don't know. I'm not super down. But I thought... Let me do what's right. Let me be chivalrous. I walked her through the dark and scary woods to the cove, right? So I go there with her, and then she says, let's steal their clothes. And I'm like, what? Like, great idea. Not going to be part of it. Right? So I'm like, no thanks. I don't want to be part of that. And so she ends up stealing their clothes. And I'm going to pause the story right here because we'll come back to it. But let me just tell you, those guys... We're not happy campers when they got out of that water, okay? So, verse 7, it says, At the sound of the musical instruments, all the people, whatever their race or nation or language, bowed to the ground and worshipped the gold statue that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. But some of the astrologers went to the king and informed on the Jews. Now, if this were my translation, I would say, these jealous and envious astrologers were tattletales. Right? They come there, oh, these guys, they're, they're not doing it. Right? So they go and they're whining to the king, right? They come to Nebuchadnezzar and they say, long live the king, like kissing up a bit, right? You issued a decree requiring all the people to bow down and worship the gold statue when they hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harps, the pipes, and other musical instruments. That decree also states that those who refuse to bow must be thrown into a blazing furnace. I like how they reiterate exactly what he said. They're like, remember this a minute ago? You just said this? (laughs) So then Nebuchadnezzar, it says, flew into a rage. And he ordered that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought before him. When they were brought in, Nebuchadnezzar said to them, is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you refuse to serve my gods or to worship the gold statue that I have set up? I will give you one more chance to bow down and worship the statue I have made when you hear the sound of the musical instruments. But if you refuse, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. And then what god will be able to rescue you from my power? Whew. Pretty loaded and self-righteous statement there, right? He is, more likely than not, he is not issuing a direct challenge against the, the God of these three Hebrews. He's more so saying that no gods, no gods, plural, of any faith will be able to rescue these three from the power that I have and from the decision that I'll make to end your life, right? <laughs> Poor guy, though. He had no idea what kind of God we serve, right? He didn't know that our God is the God of miracles, right? He didn't know that our God is the God that can create something out of nothing, right? He didn't know that our God is the God who parted the waters and held back the sea. He didn't know that our God is the God who can make the lame walk and the blind see and the deaf hear. He didn't know that our God can bring the dead back to life. He didn't know. This poor guy. So he thinks, he thinks he's got all this power, right? 
So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. <laughs> but even if he doesn't, this is the best part, but even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue that you have set up. Oh, friends, this to me is one of the most beautiful statements of faith, right? This statement, I love it because it shows that their faith in God was not based on God's response, but it was based on his character, right? How many of us are in a difficult situation right now? How many of us are feeling like we're in a fire, like we're surrounded by an enemy we can't overcome? How many of us are feeling like we're surrounded by difficulty and struggles and trial? You see, we have this tendency to want God to respond in our ways, right? We want him to do what we think we need, what we think we want. And the trouble is when we have that feeling and he doesn't respond in that way, we can get upset. We can get resentful. Sometimes we can even lose faith because we're asking for a specific thing. But these three Hebrews... They display this beautiful faith, and they make this statement. They say, we know our God is able. He will deliver, but even if he doesn't, that doesn't change anything, right? We will not bow down. We will remain faithful. Sometimes we get so fixed on what we want that we miss and we forget what we've got, Right? We want God to answer our prayers and to respond in the ways that we want, in these particular ways, and we lose sight of the fact that God is with us. Right? God is right there in the midst of it. I remember being on call, working as a chaplain in the hospital. I got paged one night, and I responded. It was a code blue, very critical situation. By the time I got to the, the patient's room, the patient had already died. And the family is around the bedside, and they're devastated. And they see me coming, they grab me, and they pull me up to the bed. And they say, Chaplain, this can't be. This cannot be real. God has to bring him back to life. Pray for resurrection. So I was a little thrown. I'm thinking, here, this person's dead. I don't know, I want to honor what they're asking. I don't know exactly what to say. And I remember praying this prayer. I said, God, we know that you are able. And we expect that you will. But even if you don't, help us to trust. Help us to know that your presence here is enough. And that it will sustain us through this difficult time. And my friends, we didn't get the answer that we wanted that night. The patient didn't come back to life. There was no resurrection. But what we got was an extra sense of the presence of God in the midst of that tragedy. We got through it. We got God to sustain us and carry us through. 
And that, to me, was a beautiful answer to prayer. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego expressed their faith in God, their willingness to stand no matter what the outcome is. And this is what happens next. Nebuchadnezzar was so furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that his face became distorted with rage. He commanded that the furnace be heated seven times hotter than usual. Then he ordered some of the strongest men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So they tied them up. They threw them into the furnace, fully dressed in their pants, turbans, robes, and other garments. And because the king, in his anger, had demanded such a hot fire in the furnace, the flames killed the soldiers that threw the three men in. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, securely tied, fell into the roaring flames. For most people, that would be the end of the story, right? They were thrown into the fire, game over. And I think it's easy for us, knowing this story, knowing the outcome, to think, oh, what a great and cool story. But literally, God did not rescue them from the fire, right? They were thrown into the fire. These boys took a stand for what was right, and they had to pay the consequence. They were thrown into the fire, bound up. And so for many, like I said, that is where the story would end. Now let me go back to my story, all right? So I was waiting in the woods. My friend hides the clothes. We go, we leave. I go back to my cabin, get into my sleeping bag, fall asleep, and a little while later, the door bursts open, and somebody yells, where's Rhinus? And I'm like, drowsy, like, wait, wait, what? And before I know it, four of the mightiest men in the camp are pulling me out of my sleeping bag. They're carrying me on their shoulders down to the dock, and they throw me into the lake. <laughs> what? But I took a stand for what was right, right? I stood up. I didn't, I didn't. So I get thrown in the water. My prayers for deliverance were unanswered, right? It was a very cold walk back to the cabin that night. So here, the three Hebrews are thrown into the fire. But that's not the end of the story. Suddenly, it says, Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in amazement and exclaimed to his advisors, didn't we tie up three men and throw them into the furnace? Yes, your majesty, we certainly did, they replied. Look, Nebuchadnezzar shouts, I see four men unbound walking around in the fire unharmed, and the fourth looks like a god. Wow. So this has been a long disputed text, right? There's been question, wonder, was this a god? Was this an angel? Actually, Jewish scholars from way back, they always intended and contested that this fourth person in the fire was an angel of God. But early Christian interpreters, on the other hand, they always believe that this fourth person in the fire was God, that this was our God, Jesus, standing in the fire, in the midst of it, protecting them. 
And it's interesting because a portion of the book of Daniel is actually written in Aramaic. So we have these, this portion in Aramaic. And when we look at the grammar here, it's funny because both translations, like the Son of God or like a son of the gods, are correct. So it's strange. It's kind of left up for us to discern and interpret. And what I think comes out of this from the context is that Nebuchadnezzar proclaims the superiority of the God of Abraham, right? He doesn't just talk about gods in general. He talks about the one, the most high God in particular. So I believe that my God was in the fire, standing with them, protecting them. He stepped into that fire and he protected those boys. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that a beautiful image to know that the God we serve is a God who stands with us in whatever trial we're facing, in whatever fire we may be in, he is with us. He stands in the middle of it. That's the beauty of this almost, this tension. God is with us. The answer may not be what we're wanting. The outcome may not be what we're hoping for. But the beauty is God is with us. His promise remains, I will be with you. Then Nebuchadnezzar came as close as he could to the door of the flaming furnace, and he shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stepped out of the fire. Now notice it doesn't say that God rescued them from the fire. It doesn't say God walked them out of the fire or God pulled them out of the fire, right? God stood with them in the fire. And it says they stepped out. God was in the fire with them. Can you imagine the testimony these guys would have? Can you imagine the sermon they would preach after an event like this? Sometimes the greatest sermons of our lives are the sermons that come as a result of incredible pain or tragedy where we recognize and we say, God was with me through that. God saw us through that. And that is a beautiful testimony. Then the high officers, officials, governors, and advisors crowded around and saw that the fire had not touched them. Not a hair on their heads was singed and their clothing was not scorched. They didn't even smell like smoke. Then Nebuchadnezzar, he said, praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel to rescue his servants who trusted in him. They defied the king's command and were willing to die rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make this decree. If any people, whatever their race or nation or language, speak a word against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they will be torn limb from limb, and their houses will be turned into heaps of rubble. There is no other God who can rescue like this. Then the king promoted them to even higher positions in the kingdom of Babylon. Friends, what a story. What an amazing story. I want to leave you with this one word. As we have seen the, the faith and the statement that these three Hebrews made, I want to summarize it into one word. Bet. 
All right, this is a word you hear. I hear a lot of you guys saying, bet. Yeah, bet. It's like, for sure, that's what it is, right? That's what's up. Bet. So here it is. Bet. Believe. Expect. And trust. Right? These Hebrews, they said, we know. We believe our God is able. We trust. We know and expect that he will deliver. But whether or not it happens our way, whatever the outcome is, we trust that God will be with us, that God will see us through. So bet, believe, expect, and trust. Because the beauty of this almost, this tension, is that our God is a God who stands with us in the middle, in the fire. Let's bow our heads. Gracious God, almighty one, we are so thankful that you are Emmanuel, that you are God with us, the one who stands with us no matter what we're facing, no matter what trial, what tragedy, what sorrow, what pain, what joy, whatever we experience, Lord, you're with us. We thank you for that. Thank you for this story that shows us that we can believe, we can expect, and we can trust in you no matter what. So give us strength, give us faith, help our belief in you to grow to even stronger and deeper levels. Bless us as we continue to seek you with our whole hearts, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.